Traditionally speaking, horror, sci-fi, comic books, and heavy metal were all forms of art that have been maligned, abused, disrespected, and largely deemed culturally unsophisticated. That has changed. For instance, the Cannes Film Festival gave their top honor this year to a French Cronenberg-esque body horror film called Titan, and Dune is the prestigious picture of the year thus far. Most of the big box office haul of the last 10 years have been superhero films based on comic books, and you can find Black Sabbath on car commercials these days. Those of us that grew up in the shadows of the 60s, throughout the rise of all those art forms in the 70s and 80s, became the next wave of artists that would have some control over content that's happening today. They brought the big guns and created a world of sophistication to what was once considered adolescent material at best. Today we have one such person with us, a film director, composer, writer, cartoonist, and artist. He is the sum total of all that inspiration. This is the picture of Rich Ragsdale on this episode of $5 Buzz. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of $5 Buzz. I am your co-host, Roger Mayer, out in Los Angeles, California. Also here in Los Angeles and West Hollywood, my boy, Pete Liska. How you doing, brother? Hello, Roger. How are you? Doing fantastic. Fantastic. And as always, out in Connecticut, our man with the plan with the microphone stand, George Kersar. What's going on, brother? What's up, guys? We're just a few days away now from Halloween, and I got to tell you, it's windy, and it's just got that vibe in the air. It's like Halloween is here, and uh, it's going to be fun, man. It's on a Sunday, so looking forward to some drinks and walking around the neighborhood, and uh, yeah, stoked. Well, over here, it's 86 degrees, so and uh, it doesn't bastards. fall at all. You bastards. However, uh, and we got a, a friend of ours here out here from uh, Venice, California, out in Venice, California. Uh, a, uh, a this gentleman has done quite a bit of stuff. Uh, everything from a, a music composer, a film editor, a director, a um, uh, he is a he's an artist as well with uh, which we call it is a, a prolific artist, you know, drawing, sketching, doodling, usually in an exaggeratedly grotesque style reminiscent of the ec comics um he's done a he did one last year that uh during the pandemic and during trump's last year in office that uh is uh we'll talk about that too anyway without further ado i just want to introduce quickly my good friend rich ragsdale how you doing brother howdy boys what's up man welcome yeah and thank you for joining us rich today and if I could just go down just a quick list of credits, if you don't mind, Rich, I know you don't like uh, being all talked up, but uh, our boy uh, composed for the King of Queens and according to Jim, uh, movies like Eight-Legged Freaks and Big River Man and Mechanical Man, he's scored all of his own movies, composed music video, uh, music for video games like Club uh, Fight Club and Aliens versus Predators 1 and 2. He's directed a bunch of short films, recently YOLO and The Loop, and the features The Curse of El Charo, Sacrament, Ghost House, and coming out next February, The Long Night. Is that right, Rich? Yes, sir. And he's directed a shit ton of music videos, and I know because I was there with him for a lot of them. 
uh, Tina Guo, Avicii, Lenny Kravitz, The Sword, POD, Theory of a Dead Man, Echo, Echo Park Social Club, Blues Traveler, Daniel Sky, Chevelle 311, Hotel Sex, Ritzy Coxon, and Adrian Smith. I know you like that over there, Mr. George Cursar. Yeah, man, I got some of his vinyl uh, records right here. Rich, I'm sure you're familiar with some of these guys. Uh, Peace of Mind. I'm Killers very familiar. Iron Maiden. Adrian Smith on both those records, by the way. And uh, yeah, man, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Ghost of a Saber Tooth Tiger with Sean Lennon and Charlotte Mole's band. And uh, recently an animated music video for Sean Lennon and Les Claypool. Uh, so, I mean, that's, you know, he edits almost all of his stuff. And he has a near encyclopedic memory for all things horror films. So my man, Rich, tell us what, uh, what's been going on. Uh, I just finished my most recent uh, feature, The Long Night, um, and that'll be coming out early next year, you know, uh, probably in February. Uh, uh, it's, you know, they're still, the, the distributors are still playing around with the release date, but. And it's a horror film. Can you tell it's us? It's a horror about? film. Yeah, can you tell us a little about it, Rich? It stars uh, Scout Compton and Nolan Funk with Jeff Fahey and um, Deborah Carr Unger. And it's, uh, you know, it takes place in the South. We shot it in South Carolina. You know, this couple shows up to a house, like a weird uh, cult sort of shows up and things get very strange, you know. And so, and so that's sort of like been thus far in your career, all the feature films that you've made have been most, have been all horror films, yes. pretty much straight across the board. Yeah. And didn't you do, didn't you work on another one simultaneously? Isn't there another one that's been sort of out there in the works? Uh, no, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a number of, uh, we're, you know, we've, we've got, we've got a couple projects that are, yeah, in the hopper, so to speak, but uh, they're not in production yet. I'm more confusing the long night with the, the I had originally had a title called Coven, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a weird project because it was I, it was was not like a movie I set out to make. Some producers I knew called me, and their production was, you know, in trouble. They the they fired their director, and then they fired another director, and uh, you know, they had a crew that was waiting around to make a movie. So I went out there, and, and <laughs> we we ended up having to like re basically rewrite the script as we were making the film and, you know, uh, redesign the whole thing. And, and by the, at this point, they'd, go, they'd run through most of their money. So it was a, it was a challenge. Right. It was fun and it, it turned out really well, I think. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. So what uh, I'd love, oh God, I wish we could, you could take us on a tour of your, uh, of your place to show us your house of horrors. Uh, I remember one time we did together, we did a, um, a pilot for the freak show. Oh, yeah. Reality series. And your place kind of is reminiscent of that a little bit uh, with all the little doodads and stuff in there. And so tell me, I mean, so this time of year, you know, we get together. We talk a lot about horror films. You and I, we talk about films, period, in general. You and I, when we get on the phone, we could go for three or four fucking hours talking about movies. Um, so, what you know, this time of year, everybody's concentrating on particularly horror themes and horror films and so forth. So when you were a kid, what drew you into wanting to become, what was it that inspired you to eventually just, you know, sort of base your, 
career behind it? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's just like I, I always liked horror films, you know, growing up and, and science fiction films. And things. You know, it's just I, I was a like a very kind of weird, imaginative kid. And so I spent a lot of time in my head. And I don't know if it has something to do with, you know, my brother and I, we grew up primarily in Tennessee. And there's, you know, there's a real gothic sort of sense to the South. I don't, I don't, I don't really know where it came from. I just always have had kind of a, a dark aesthetic. Um, I mean, that said, I mean, I, I, I like comedies and I like, you know, whatever, Disney films or whatever, but, uh, you know, it's like, uh, for some reason, I just was always drawn to uh, horror films. Yeah, I mean, we had an impassioned argument or a discussion about Nomadland as much as we've had yeah. about any film. So, oh, what sure. was the, what was the what was the the thing that that let you know it was that was it for you though? I mean, did you see it? Was there a movie or something or a what? literature or a comic book or something? Uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to say. I, I don't know. You know, just like I think it was you know, like watching, you know, when I was a little kid, we didn't have cable. So I, I saw all my horror movies on like UHF channels, you know, and uh, the late night just, Friday night monster movie double feature. Exactly. All that kind of stuff, you know, and, and, you know, back then, like the UHF channels weren't that regulated. So they'd show stuff sort of uncensored. And, you know, I was probably way too young to see some of the movies I saw. But, you know, I don't know, I just loved them. It, you know, it's, it's really... I, it's, it's hard to pinpoint um, like one specific thing that got me interested in it. You know, I, I had cousins that were older than me. They really liked like famous monsters of Filmland magazine and, and, and uh, they were really into stuff like Alice Cooper and Kiss and stuff like that. And that was all kind of scary. I, I don't know, you know, it's just like there was, I think there were just a lot of things in the ether around, uh, around me when I was a kid that just kind of drew me into this stuff. And monsters are just more fun anyway. So, you know, like, especially drawing and stuff. It's just, you know. Mine, mine hit me around 1979 when I had an older, my parents were moved away. My best, my dad's best friend's son was 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. The one that had all the famous monsters books, the beginning of Fangoria. And, you know, he just started showing me Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just went down a rabbit hole of mm -hmm. like, horror movies now i i loved all movies before that right i was apocalypse now was my favorite movie but it was him when he took me to a double feature of eraser head and night of living dead at a retrospective theater that i think really put the fucking hook in me and i know that you have an appreciation for both those movies as much as i do yeah yeah no i mean both of those movies were really uh had 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 a huge impact on me in in different ways and at different times in my life but you know, it's funny actually. I watched, a, I rewatched a movie last night on uh, uh, on Blu-ray that uh, it, it was probably one of the most formative uh, experiences I had with a movie as a kid, if that makes sense. So it's like, sure. so it was uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah, and and so, like, I was, I had bought this book as a little kid. Wait, was that nineteen eighty? No, no, no. It's like 1950. Oh, the original yeah. one. The Jack, yeah, Jack, one. the Jack Arnold film. Yeah. And the Incredible Melting Man. I kept thinking you were thinking. The Incredible yeah. Freaking Man, the Jack Arnold movie. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, as a kid, I bought this book at like Kmart. You know, it was like a coffee table book and it was on sale and it was like, you know, two or three bucks. And it just had, it was like a whole, a book of uh, like kind of the history of horror films up to that point. And, 
and you know it had like freaks in there and all of these kind of cool movies and I used to just kind of leaf through it and you know like kind of living in sort of the rural suburbs of Tennessee we didn't have video stores or anything so it's like if I was, if I was going to see one of these movies you had to catch it on TV and the one movie you know there was this still in there that was a picture of uh, uh, what's the actors the main character is like fighting a giant tarantula with yeah. a with a needle you know and and uh, I was you know so it really it like blew my mind as a little kid I was like I got to see this movie and so um it was going to come on tv uh, on, on like a saturday and so I was like I was there was no way I was going to miss it you know this was uh, appointment viewing yeah <laughs> so it was like uh I, I was going to watch it and then a friend of a, a classmate of mine had called and his mom had asked my mom if I could, if I would wanted to spend the night. And it was one of those, you know, you're like eight, nine years old and, you know, you don't want to go over to the weird kid's house. And, you know, his mom asked my mom and she says, yeah. So I get sort of forced to go to this kid's house. And I, I told him at school, I was like, look, it's cool. What's that? You weren't the weird kid? No, I was, the, <laughs> I've never been the weird kid, but <laughs> I, you know, I'll try to make this story short, but it, it's like, you know, I told him at school, I was like, look, it's cool as long as we can watch this movie, you know, I've just got to see this movie with the guy with the needle and the giant spider and everything. And uh, so I go to his house and it's getting, it's about an hour until the movie comes on. And uh, he asks his mom, he goes, hey, can we uh, watch this movie? And she's like, no, go outside and play, you know? And so I'm just devastated. Oh. So he's like, I got this idea. And we walked up, I mean, it seemed like a mile down this road. You know, he lived way out of town. And so it was like out in the middle of nowhere. We walked down this old dirt road and we, we, we went to an old folks home that was down the road from him. It's just like a terrible place. It was like the cinder block, just depressing building. We go in and there's all these like old people sitting around, just look, look like they're ready to die. And, you know, he goes in and kind of puts on the cute kid voice, like, can we watch TV? And they're like, yeah, little, little Eddie, watch whatever he wants. And so we put on the movie and we like scoot up, you know, like the, you know, you're like a little kid, you're like six inches from the screen. And we watch this movie and it's, it's like, it's great. You know, it's like the guy shrinking, his cat tries to eat him, all this kind of cool stuff. He ends up trapped in his basement. He fights a spider for a piece of cake and, you know, and he kills the spider. And then at the end of the movie, uh, he steps outside into his backyard and he like looks up at the heavens and he, he the whole movie has been angry, like fighting this, his fate, you know, almost kind of like Joseph K in the trial or something, just like just raging against his fate. He's an angry man. And then the, the very end of the movie is he steps outside, he, he shrinks so small he can fit through the, the mesh of the, of the screen that covers the basement window. He steps into his yard and it's like a jungle and he looks up at the sky and he sees the the universe and he basically just accepts his fate that he's going to shrink out of existence and it's just like i'm surrounded by all these people who are just about to die and i see this guy who's just you know this this movie about this guy who just accepts his fate and i had like my first existential crisis and my mind was just blown and then this kid sitting next to me he's like all right let's go <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow a, sorry that was a long story but <laughs> no that was awesome. <laughs> yeah that's a hell of a story Rich, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you uh, left uh, rural Tennessee and kind of made it to uh, Berkeley College, big city? That's up in Boston, right? Is that the yeah. school you went to? Yeah, that's I, well, you know, I started 
uh, school in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, you know, mm -hmm. uh, college, started going to music school. Sure. And then I had met a, on vacation, I met actually one of the professors from Berkeley. He was like, you should apply because I wanted to do film scoring. And they had a, at that time, their program was new. And so I applied and actually my classical guitar teacher, he had gone to Berkeley for his undergrad and wrote me a good letter. I, I got in, you know, and it uh, changed my life. You know, really, it was really great. You know, to get away from kind of the South and kind of a smaller, I mean, at that point we kind of moved, you know, we were living in like Nashville proper and stuff, and right. stuff you know, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely, you know, I just, you know, it was just a progression kind of, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Uh, yeah, I was just curious what it was like going to that school, because I know a lot of what very well-known and accomplished musicians go there and you know, it seems like a lot of these really talented people are attracted to that place. So just for like, you know, the average person or, you know, what, what, what could you speak of on that institution? Was there, a, did it have a big uh, influence on you or was it more just like, ah, it's just a school and I'm trying to get yeah. through? Well, I mean, I'd always been a terrible student growing up. And so it was like, I was finally in school for something I actually wanted to do, you know? And so it was like, I, I actually excelled. I, I did pretty well at the school and, and it, Berkeley is a great place because a it's in Boston and it's a very like vibrant town and a lot mm -hmm. of young people because it's a college town plenty of colleges, lots of right? colleges yeah <laughs> and then um but also Berkeley in particular is a very international school so you know I I had friends from like Greece and you know uh the Czech Republic um and and you know um you know, uh, Japan, all, all, all over, really. I mean, just, uh, and you just mingled with all these people and you all had this thing in common that you were, everybody was a musician and very passionate about it. And so it was a great place to be. And it really opens your uh, horizons. How many of you were into Penzoretsky and Motorhead? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I think that there's a lot of crossover there. No, but that's where I discovered shit like Penzoretsky. You know, I mean, it really... I had a lot of life-changing moments in, you know, going to music school, you know, cause it's, you get exposed to a lot of stuff that you wouldn't normally uh, run into uh, outside of academia, I guess. You know. and as a composer, do you, what did you, do you prefer orchestrations or electronic music? Do you prefer, I mean, is there a preference or is it just what fits the picture? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think, for me, yeah, I mean, whatever, you, you know, it, I don't have a specific preference. I mean, I like my, my personal preference for writing is I, if I can, I like to use an orchestra. I like to, it's a big sound and you get a lot of people playing. It's very exciting. It's a lot like kind of production because you have to record a lot of music in a very short period of time and it's expensive and it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure. So, uh, but it, it's also kind of fun to work with that many people. Uh, but, you know, I mean, like some of my favorite film scores are like the John Carpenter score from Escape from New York, you know, or Howard Shore's score for the movie Crash, you know, the David Cronenberg film. Yeah. So didn't Carpenter you know, also do Halloween? Yes. And uh, it, it just made me thinking as he's talking and talking about the horror movies is that one of the major uh, elements of horror movies like uh, Halloween and I'm thinking of like Friday the 13th, but like the strings, it's just a really important part of uh the movies 
those type of movies. So was that something that you always were uh, building towards after, you know, maybe college and you wanted to, did you have a certain, um, you know, sound that you wanted to uh, correlate with the films? Well, like, like Raj was talking about, there's a composer named Penderecki who was a Polish composer that is kind of best known for his music from like the sixties. And it's very avant-garde orchestral music. And, uh, you know, his music was used famously in, in movies like 2001 and The Shining and um, I think a little bit in, in The Exorcist. And so I, those were movies I already loved. So when I heard his music away from that stuff and kind of became aware of it as its own thing, uh, it really affected me. And because it's like he, he had this whole uh, like new approach of, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, there was like Stockhausen and Ligeti and to a certain extent, Ludus Lossky and some of these other composers were doing what they call like extended techniques where you, you know, you don't write like regular notes, you use graphic notation. It's very strange and it makes very strange sounds. But for me, Penderecki's the best. He's the gold standard of that kind of music. And so, you know, I, I once I learned how to write music like that, uh, that's I, I kind of wanted to do that as much as I could. And they're outside of horror films. There's really, and maybe the odd science fiction film or something. There, there's not a lot of room for that kind of stuff, you know. Um, to be utilized to utilize that kind of music for something. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe a psychological thriller, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's like Penderecki's music is in movies like uh, City of God and stuff. Right. Or no, no, Children of Men. I'm sorry, Children of Men. Yeah, you know. the, uh, one, of, one of those South American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, South you know, like they use a little bit of Threnody and, and it's. So uh, I tried to play. I tried to put Threnody of the Victims of Hiroshima on a playlist. And I, got, I had George and Nate listen to it. Nate's our artist. And they both said, uh, Roger, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I, 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 I like to just listen to that music. And, and I, you know, you forget sometimes that like a lot of people find it sort of off-putting. Yeah, I don't get that either. But the, um, uh, and fuck those people if they don't understand. So um, I love you, George. But the, mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, um, so the core, I mean, music uh, in, in horror films, is extraordinarily important there's no doubt about that i mean uh there is one horror film i could think of where there's no music i can think of more than one there's two that i could think of uh the one is the uh Pogdanovich film targets right oh yeah great movie and then of course the famous infamous i spit on your grave has not one lick of music in it interesting the from the 70s yeah yeah i love that movie too well you know another movie that it, it has music at the very at the and the credits and the end credits and there's no music for the rest of the film is todd browning's dracula well all horror films didn't have it did you i just watched this i'll give you a, a piece of uh trivia here the black cat in 1934 was the yeah. very first movie edgar g Ulmer, the very first movie to use music all the way through a movie as yeah. a composed piece of score all the way through a feature it only used to be opening and end credits yeah I with the in, with movie. the intention with the intention of carrying the story along the more yeah. right that's correct what you're yeah. saying it's not like you know there's movies that have that have music and it's like a a, a curated uh you know popular music list but there's also music that's composed that carries the story along which that's what i mean to be more prevalent in horror films than any other films or is that fair to say i mean it's actually across the board isn't it yeah, yeah i mean i think that it, 
I mean, you know, like generally the more stylized the film, I find the more music they use, you know? So I don't know, you know, like Edgar Wright will use music from start to finish, but you know, he makes these kind of quirky action films. And, and he uh, uses a lot, he incorporates like Tarantino, a lot of needle drops. A lot of songs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, he puts a lot of needle drops in it, but for composed music, like I was saying, Black Cat was the very first movie yeah. to utilize it all the way through a film. And then, As, you know, if you like watch, you, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s, I mean, they used to just score movies wall to wall. You know, I mean, they just, you know, when you had guys like Eric Korngold and Max Steiner and stuff doing music, it was just like, you know, start to finish music almost. And then with horror films, it really all begins and ends with Bernard Herrmann. Yes. Is, I mean, he's like probably, I think, the best film score composer just across the board. Who would he be one of the pioneers in like building tension through music and that type of uh, nuance no. in the storytelling? I mean, I think, uh, you know, like really one of the first great, like, I think, uh, scary movie scores, like where it was scored to picture uh, is probably Max Steiner's score for King Kong. Mm, yeah. You know, it's a great, uh, very famous film score, you know. And then, um, shoot who wrote not Lalo Schiffer I can't remember who wrote the music for Bride of Frankenstein but it it also has quite a good score um it has a very interesting score actually you know they do some really weird kind of melodic stuff uh but you know Bernard Herrmann I mean just he was just the best he was just really one of the best for those who don't know Bernard Herrmann all you have to say is one movie and it's Psycho yeah so yeah it's that's about as famous as it gets and the very last movie he ever scored was Taxi Driver. That's right. Yeah. Is that a is that a violin that makes that famous uh, noise from Psycho? Yes. And you know the funny thing about Psycho is like people don't realize this when they're watching it is the only it's only strings. There's no other instruments in the score. So Oh, I did not know that. And it's it's actually if I had to pick a single favorite film score it'd probably be Psycho. I mean it's just start to finish. Just but it wasn't supposed to be that score, right? Well, he wasn't supposed to. Alfred Hitchcock didn't want any music in the shower scene originally, and and Bernard Herrmann convinced him to let him score it. And then, uh, at least supposedly, uh, Hitchcock heard the score and was like, "Oh yeah, that's better." You know, <laughs> didn't he tell him no strings too? Uh, I, I don't remember I heard that story. That he told him no strings. So not only does he compose the scene, but he does it with strings. Yeah, every the whole and, and only strings. Well, and Bernard Herrmann was a sort of notoriously uh, like a, he was a sort of notorious curmudgeon and very stubborn and, and, you know, it got him in trouble a lot. And I think it probably ended his career with Hitchcock at some point, but he, uh, you know, so I, I imagine somebody telling him not to use strings. He'll be like, oh, I'm just going to use strings. You know, it's, it sounds like it would be in character uh, for him. That's great. But that, you know, that, that whole, yeah. I'm just thinking of that whole opening sequence. Um, yeah. It's it, it's it's good. I mean, he did music for oh, some. Paul Bass, right? Yeah. Doing the yeah. Title. yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, why why don't we just get into talking about some of your favorites? I mean, mm. we're both going to have some of the same favorites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I always say that my favorite, like English language film, is is Eraserhead. I mean, just across the board, horror film or not. So, um. It just because it, it as a kid again as a kid growing up in the south it's like I, I had another book had a big write-up on a racer head in it and you know it was no way to see it 
And uh, when I finally got, you know, like a lot of these things you read about movies or you see the poster or something, you, you just imagine something that's just so amazing. And then you watch it and it's almost always a disappointment. And Eraserhead was sort of the opposite. I, I you know, I didn't have access to any art films or anything. I mean, probably the, before that I saw the Gen X conundrum. We, you know, we, we, we had all the materials to know about all these films. Yeah. We didn't have the access to kids do these days. Exactly. And so it was like when I finally tracked down a copy of Eraserhead, I was probably maybe 13, 14 years old. And, and you know, I had been wanting to see it for several years. And then when I finally did see it, it just, it blew my mind. It just, it, you know, I didn't know movies could do that. Is that David Lynch's first film? Yeah. Yeah. This so, feature film, yeah. yeah. What's interesting about that, and I, and I, since I have you guys here, I want to ask: as far as first film goes, you have like you know famous first films from a lot of famous directors. You know, uh, was it Reservoir Dogs for Tarantino, and maybe uh, oh, oh, what was the one from the Coen Brothers? Uh, Blood Simple. Blood Simple. And then you might have heard of a little movie called Citizen Kane. That was yes, his first film. <laughs> who was his? Who whose first film was his? Well, Orson, Orson Welles. Welles. Orson Welles, of course, of course. So what I'm saying is, is Eraserhead maybe one of the most important first films, in I mean, your opinion? For me. Uh, no. And how does it how does it stack up to first efforts from other major directors? Basically, is what I'm asking. I mean, it, that's a subjective call. I mean, it is a, a subjective people, question. A lot of people think Citizen Kane is like the greatest film ever made. I mean, for me, I love Citizen Kane, but I love Eraserhead way, way more. I mean, it's just. Mm -hmm. Film to me, but and I, I think kind of like uh, Citizen Kane for me. I mean, David Lynch has made consistently many, many great films, mm -hmm. but he's never made a movie as good as Eraserhead again. That's just, really, yeah. Well, that's interesting because you could argue that you know the Coen Brothers went on to make better films. Oh, I think so. Than uh, Blood Simple, and you could argue that uh, who else did we just mention? Tarantino did went on to make better films. Yeah. yeah so and uh, even to, yeah, exactly. So. That that alone gives uh, David Lynch some interesting. Uh, Otterberg came out of the gate with Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Although, uh, the first Stanley debut film to win the Palme d'Or. Oh, Stanley Kubrick uh, started with uh, uh, Fear and Desire. Fear and Desire, yeah, which is maybe not his best film. <laughs> yeah, film that he tried to bury until, yeah. in fact, it didn't come out until after he died. Yeah, is well, Blood I, Simple I, the movie with um, Billy Bob Thornton? they're like trying to like uh, there's something going on and like the uh you're thinking of a movie called a simple plan directed a simple by plan sam raimi now it's oh, funny yeah. those are all cousins i mean Blood simple those, yeah those filmmakers are kind of cousins with the coen brothers they all kind of came up around the same time in fact uh most of the editing for sam raimi's first film evil dead it was uh joel cohen helped him edit some of that movie and there's a camera gag in the Evil Dead that the Coen brothers and Barry Sonnenfeld stole in Blood Simple. That's where the camera's rushing at the camera really fast at 100 miles, or rushing towards its subject through the house really fast. Can you refresh my memory on Blood Simple? I know I've seen it. Blood Simple is 1984-85. Oh. Uh, it stars Frances McDormand in one right. of her very first roles. Yep. That's mm -hmm. where she met Joel Cohen, in fact. Yeah. And it has Dan Hedaya and I forget the actor's name. He was in The Fly. He's the one who gets all fucked up at the end, who plays the boyfriend of, uh, or the, the, anyway, he's in it too. And then it's a, a film noir. Uh, 
about a guy who tries to hire somebody played by M. Emmett Walsh to kill his wife because he's cheating. She's cheating on him. Okay. And Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. No, Jeff Goldblum was in The Fly. Yeah. Isn't that what you just said? No, the guy who played, the guy who plays the husband in or the boyfriend bartender in Blood Simple, played Gina Davis's boss, who yeah. gets all fucked up at the end of the movie. <laughs> Like, like where he pukes on his ankle and stuff. Yeah, and his ankle disintegrates. <laughs> and, you know, I know we're uh, going off on a tangent, but Roger, one other movie that I like that they okay. made, uh, The Hudsucker Proxy, was a good film. Yeah. Which they did with Sam Raimi. With Sam Raimi co-wrote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, their movies are so uh, diverse, and uh, I really... about use of music as well. Yeah. Except for, and we've said this, I've said this before, uh, the... Uh, the Big Lebowski. I love all of them except for that one. I, I don't know why. I'm but. not a big Big Lebowski fan either, and I really can't stand the, their version of the Lady Killers, and I do not like Indecent Proposal. Not Indecent Proposal. The, the fuck is that one? Well, with George Clooney. Right? And Catherine zeta Oh, yeah, yeah, that was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not a great film. I can live with all the rest. <laughs> and they continue to, you know, I'm looking forward to Joel Cohen on his own and this uh, Macbeth coming out, man. Come on now with Denzel Washington. Wow. I can white and Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Come on now. I just rewatched uh, the True Grit a couple of days ago, actually. Their version. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. solid. Oh, dude, so good. Uh, so good. I loved it. it it's funny that uh, Jeff Bridges was nominated for Best Actor for a role that won John Wayne his Oscar. Yeah. Go figure. Um, so uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, I think, uh, Rich, till we go to the bathroom real quick. And we'll be back in two minutes. Okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we will be right back. Hey, we have a quick favor to ask. We want to get the word out. And the way to help is for you to subscribe to us on either Apple or Spotify. And it would be really huge if you give us a rating and a review. Much love. Thanks uh, for uh, listening to us today, guys. If you, we really appreciate it. If you uh, like, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button, that little bell. Leave us a review. Uh, it helps people find us. So we appreciate the support. We're just trying to uh, make the signal a little louder. Um, we're back here with uh, Rich Ragsdale. And uh, in addition to working on a lot of films, he's also spent a lot of his uh, professional time uh, working on music videos. Rich, I know at the top of the show, we talked a little bit about Iron Maiden. I was a big Iron still am a big Iron Maiden fan. And one of my favorite Iron Maiden songs is uh, Wasted Years, which was written by Adrian Smith. And I tell people, if you, you know, a lot of people are maybe put off by the artwork or like the, the heavy metal vibes of Iron Maiden. I'm like, if you listen to one Iron Maiden song only, I would say it's wasted years. And I know uh, Adrian Smith wrote that song. And I know you uh, worked on at least one music video with him. And, you know, what was it like as a fan to also uh, work with a guy like that on a professional level? Well, we, we met Adrian a while back uh, through some mutual friends. And so, and he's always been very nice to us. And his wife in particular is, is very friendly with us. And, and so, He's got this new project with uh, Richie Kotzen, who's another mm -hmm. sort of shredder guitar guy. 
and uh, they called us up and we did a video for them. And it was kind of a bummer because it was in COVID. And so we shot Richie Kotzen here. And then I had to like show a production team in, in, in uh, London how we shot it, you know, and the tricks we were using. And then they shot Adrian, I edited it. Uh, so then I was, I was kind of bummed about it because I didn't get to actually work with Adrian. But then, you know, a couple months later, he came over here and we did another video with those guys. And, uh, you know, and it was kind of, we shot it more like a, like a band, you know, so we got to, you know, like I said, we, we've known Adrian for a while, but it was really fun to get to like work with him. And, and I'm like you, when I was a little kid, I, I really was into Iron Maiden. Yeah. And it just seems like what he's doing with Richie Kotzen is like really not like Iron Maiden at all. I mean, at least what I've heard. Yeah. It's very different, right? Yeah, it's more like kind of, um, you know. Kind of like a Stevie Ray Vaughan type vibe yeah. to it. Is that fair? Yeah, it's like a straight ahead kind of blues rock kind of thing. Yeah. And they Which throw is cool. a little bit of like prog kind of stuff here and there. But, uh, you know, it's very, uh, very straight ahead for the most part. You know? Yeah. Just your standard rock and roll. Yeah, standard rock and roll, you know. Um, so... You know, I, you know, Adrian's, all, he's one of those guys, he's always, if, if Maiden's not touring or recording, he's, he's doing something like that. You know, he, 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 you know, he keeps himself busy. What are one or two of your favorite music videos that you created that you found satisfactory? Uh, what well, there was one that Raj and I worked on together, which was the uh, Ghost of the Sabertooth Tiger, which was for uh, Charlotte Kemp Mole and her boyfriend, uh, Sean Lennon. And that, that turned out uh, really well. Shot it on like 35 millimeter and made it look like a hippie cult kind of thing, you know, with Kenneth Anger sort of visuals. And it was a lot of fun. A lot of nudity in that one. A lot of nudity. Yeah. You a know. lot of naked people walking around on that set. And I'll, I'll never forget, it's on that set where I walked in, in through the dressing room and people in various stages of dress and undress because nobody really gave a shit. And I walked up and uh, Sean Lennon goes, oh, shit, it's my mom. I don't want to answer that phone. And it took me two steps to go, he's talking about Yoko fucking Ono. That's my <laughs> mother. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa, dude. And then the other thing I remember is, uh, what's that guy's name? John Barlow? Uh, yeah, from the Grateful Dead. Uh, yeah. the songwriter for Every, the Dead. We had him in there for because he was good friends with Sean. Yeah. Him and I had like a three-hour conversation uh, out in the uh, outside the Masonic Temple near the craft service table, just talking about uh, life and art and so forth. That was that was pretty fascinating. He had there was a lot of fanfare for his one little brief scene in that music video. Yeah, yeah, it was you know, Sean, it was important to Sean that we put him in. Uh, he he was like, well, we're in the same Masonic Temple together or whatever. <laughs> so I was like, all right, so. Uh, and name of name of I mean that one was great and, and you got yeah. a couple of others that you felt sad you know that you I mean there's been a, there's been a bunch that I thought turned out well I mean I like doing narrative music videos so they're kind of like little mini short films and uh, we did one for a band called Theory of a Dead Man which was kind of we did a a play on Shirley Jackson's The Lottery the short story you yeah know. I'm in it and Raj is in it yeah he plays a like I'm, he's in a like a sort of redneck cult. I got a lot of cults in my shit. I don't know why, you know. <laughs> I was with uh, my wife was uh, what's her face? Um, 
our friend Olivia Barish. Oh, Olivia Barish, yeah, that's right. The, the lead actress from Repo Man. Repo Man, yeah. Was, was my was my wife in the in the. In the I got a I got a question about the the music videos. So, music videos, you know, as a component to a band's you know repertoire and their success, is important. But where does it stand now? Because it seems that there seems to be less of a budget for these types of things, and it doesn't seem to be that artistic thing that attaches to a really cool band that it was in the '90s or maybe even prior to that. I mean, it really was a cool way to express for a band to express themselves for a bit, but now it seems like, is that a necessary component anymore? I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it. we're in a weird state. I mean, the music industry in general is in a weird place because, you know, with streaming and stuff, nobody makes any money. So everybody makes most of their money off touring. But uh, so in a way music videos are very important now for bands because you know you need to do anything you can to get people's attention it'll um, get them some youtube exposure actually that exactly. makes some sense and, yeah and also monetize your videos you know if, if if they start doing well you'll make money off of them if you can start getting in the millions of views and stuff and so uh they are very important for bands but at the same time you know because you know uh bottom has kind of fallen out of the traditional music industry um there's not a lot of money for most bands most bands don't make a lot of money and so the videos you have to do them really on the cheap the labels aren't paying as much anymore i mean you're not seeing things like remember tool would come out with those incredibly produced videos and they'd looked at it as an extension of their own art you know and also the guitarist adam jones was uh special effects uh artist he worked on uh, terminator 2 and some other films of that era but yeah i understand what you're saying of course and yeah some of i mean some of the larger acts i mean yeah the budgets for those things must have been pretty impressive in like the 80s and 90s right like those aerosmith videos they were like film productions the big artists still have big music videos too but but i mean it's not quite like the 90s when it was like michael jackson would pay David yeah. like five million dollars for me you know it'd be like a five ten million dollar music video I mean, that just is gone you know? my daughters still watch we still because it's halloween and they're like ages eight and six we still watch the thriller video oh, and also like the making of it and my daughter henley's like it's not a movie but it's it's not just like a short she's like what is it i'm like yeah it's kind of like a short movie but uh that accompanies the song but it's still really cool that video uh yeah. You know, I know I'm digressing, but uh, it's Halloween and we yeah. always fire that one up around this time of year. I mean, like, that was absolutely go. breakthrough. I mean, yeah. you know, making a film concept like that, that was absolutely incredible. Yeah, they did kind of like uh, t- uh, Teenage Werewolf and then like the Night of the Living Dead kind of towards yeah. the end where he's trapped in the house. Yeah. And, uh, Vincent Price was in there. That it's It was fun. I mean, it still resonates, man, with like kids that are well, it's iconic, the, you know yeah yeah I mean, it's the cultural moment you know yeah I mean, like when, when it came out like mtv it was the only time i think they would ever tell you like when the video was going to be on right you know, normally it was like the radio you just right to, that's right they did that maybe yeah. like we're going to show it again at, at, in two hours you know and so appointment you know, viewing yeah exactly so um yeah i remember it 
because i mean because when you when when you get in rich when you get into like conceptualizing these you know these things with uh with the artists you know i can imagine from your perspective as a musician and a director you know you you it it keeps evolving but then there seems to be probably a, a incredible constraint with money when it comes now at least lately or is that completely wrong no i mean there are acts that will spend money on videos and uh you know i mean i'm kind of in that middle tier of music video directors i mean you have these guys that do like lady gaga and Katy perry and stuff and they you know those people still generally speaking or you know whoever i mean that, that's maybe a dated reference but you know but um you know, Drake or whomever, you know, uh, the Jonas Ockerlands and, you know, yeah, exactly. So they can pay, there's like a handful of directors that get most of those gigs. And, um, you know, we, we get some of the sort of middle territory, middle budget gigs. And then, you know, I mean, the problem is that like, there's a lot of younger filmmakers who will basically make a music video for free or even lose money on it just to, to, you know, to do as a builder i mean yeah, yeah it fell into the, it yeah. fell into that bin it fell into yeah. like okay let's do something sexy for five minutes and yeah. you know donate your time and, and blah 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 but you know it's a shame because it was really a, a cultural import a culturally important aspect to finding out about music yeah yeah um, you guys remember sorry roger uh real quick there was a pretty prolific i think uh video uh, director Anton Corbin. Do you guys yeah. remember him? Oh, yeah. He used to work with like the Pesh Mode and uh, yeah, this yeah. type of guys. But he also directed a film, Roger. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. Three o'clock high. Do you remember that film? That's Three not, high. No, that's Phil Janow. Yeah, is it? Okay. Yep. Phil Janow directed that. But did Janow was he involved in music videos as well? Yes, he was. He did. Okay, uh, that's where uh, I'm getting my wires crossed. He did uh, a bunch of stuff for, um, like the um, he did Rattle and Hum. Yeah, the whole right. that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, Rattle and Hum, and I always loved that fucking movie, man. I love the Rick High, and I feel like it does not get the uh, love that it deserves, Roger. But I'm he revived. Hear that? I'm sorry. Classic, <laughs> classic film villain. <laughs> 1987 was a rough time for that. It, because they'd already done Back to the Future almost three times. They've already done, yeah. you know that 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 Spielberg sort of lifestyle was on its way out the door. Yeah, it kind of had the Ferris Bueller kind of uh, feel to it, but not quite. That's what know? I mean. It it was it yeah. was on the, it was on the back end of those kind of uh, uh, growing. What's it? Um, rights of, of age. Yeah, coming coming of age. Of age male white centric coming of age in suburban jeffrey tambor uh, had a role in that uh film yes he did yeah but this is not a this is not a three o'clock high uh episode no no (laughs) you ever seen three o'clock high dude i can't get through it i can't get i mean i I just can't do it i can't really do it really yeah i think you owe it to yourself to give it one more shot Sorry, Rich. Anyway, I've never seen Three O'clock High. I'm sorry. You don't. Me, have, me you're either. Anything. You're okay. Rich. Well, now you know what you're doing when you uh, yeah. get off this recording. It's in the queue now. <laughs> right, let's give our let's give our listeners, you know, some suggestions for mm. you know, 
let's try to throw a couple of curveballs of horror films that people might not have seen that are great, old or new. Rich, I mean, Rich, why don't you go ahead and give us a give us a couple that are um, outside the box? Just like a, sort of outside, out of the box, or outside yeah, the box. You can't say, like, I mean, uh, Psycho, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exorcist, those are all obvious, you know. So something something that's sort of beyond or out in the beaten path, off the beaten path. Okay, I don't I don't know if this is obscure enough, but there's a French horror film. It's it's very disturbing, but it's a, a really amazing movie called Martyrs. Uh, oh yeah, have you seen that? I mean, that's that's a, quite a cool movie. The ending is really up. It's very very dark. Uh, you know, very you know, so it's not for everybody, but it's I, I love it. Um, what would be another really good obscure uh, horror film? I, I, I don't know, maybe Tetsuo the Iron Man. Tetsuo the Iron Man's fantastic. Fantastic, That's, right. Uh, about a, a guy who starts growing body parts made out of metal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. It's a, It was a, a brief period of cyberpunk filmmaking out of Japan. Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably the first real cyberpunk kind of film, you know. That's right. You know, and it's really, really great you know uh uh and um let's see what would be another uh while you think of that while you think of that i just want to say i find it amazing that the parallels between horror fans and metal fans actually there's a there's a unpretentiousness in both genres in their respective thing that exists and it makes a lot of sense for a horror fan to enjoy metal if you, if I may say, that's an observation I'm getting yeah. from this whole conversation. Fucking nerds. I will also say the thing about the guys, generally speaking, the guys I meet that make horror films and the guys that are like metal musicians that we work with, they're the nicest guys. They're actually the oh, nicest. This, absolutely. Like, we work absolutely. with pop artists and stuff, and they're just annoying and they're terrible. Uh, and then you know these metal guys are always you know, just so sweet and super cool. I mean, like Adrian and Richie, they couldn't be any nicer, you know, just like, and it was like, you know, I, I've done music for guys like uh, Stuart Gordon and stuff. And, and he was just, uh, just really just the nicest guy. He really was a mentor for me, honestly, as far as directing. Stuart Gordon directed the movie Reanimator, yeah. a movie that everybody should see, a horror comedy from the 80s, a classic horror yeah. comedy film. And he did a, another one called From Beyond that's quite good too. That was a film that he did right after that. And then Rich and his brother Kevin produced, and you did the score for a, a play based on David Mamet yeah. Ed- called Edmund. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I did about half the music, and then this guy named Bobby Johnston did the other half. He's done a lot of work with Stuart, too. And then I went on, I did an episode of Masters of Horror for Stuart uh, that was based on the life of Edgar Allan Poe. It was very cool. Rich, uh, just going back a little bit, would you say that you were a musician first or a filmmaker first? Or what, what is your first art, would you say? Because they complement each other so very much, but did yeah. one motivate the other is what I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out. Well, I mean, you know, it's weird because like when I was a kid, my parents thought I would be a visual artist when I grew up, you know, like a, a cartoonist or an animator or a painter or something, you know. And then I became a musician and they thought I was kind of throwing my life away. And then a, I did fairly well as a composer. Uh, and so filmmaking was almost kind of an afterthought, really. But I mean, I, I feel like they, all of these things are all just kind of related. Oh, I yeah, yeah. I mean, I just like try to be a creative person. I, I, I don't really, 
identify is any of these things specifically. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it absolutely it absolutely does. It almost it it to me it gives kind of a truth to you being an artist that you just naturally connect them to your own to suit your own needs and your own desires as an artist, which I think is actually pretty awesome. Yeah, he's a one stop shop. You can write and direct the film, edit it, compose the music, and then create the key art all at the same time. <laughs> Hey, I will say, you know, this in, uh, I, I did not score my most recent film. Yeah, you did not. I did not. I, uh, yeah. it was just like, it, you know, COVID and all that. It just made things, it, it was just a very stressful process. I have music in the film, but it, I didn't do the original score. Uh, and I was, I was thinking about doing it, but I was just, I was kind of running on fumes a little bit. It was a very difficult movie to make. And, uh, I called a friend of mine, uh, my buddy Joe, who is probably you know the best music editor in the, in the whole film business. And I was like, I need a composer, somebody young, you know, like a hotshot kid or something. And he recommended Sherry Chung, who's his uh, significant other, and and uh, she's actually. I mean, I didn't think she would do it because she's really uh, very successful right now, and. Uh, she ended up scoring it and she's a much more sort of traditional composer, I think. Uh, and I had tempted with either some of my music or like a lot of Penderecki, a lot of this kind of avant-garde music. And I think the tension between my personal music, music aesthetic and hers, which is more melodic and kind of maybe more Hollywood, created this kind of hybrid score that's sort of somewhere between these two uh, worlds and it's, it's I think quite good and really elevated the movie. That, well, that's, that's kind of awesome because I, I, I was just going to ask like how is it I mean does it intimidate you or her that you both are a composer or do you fall into this awesome collaboration which is I mean that's great I mean you answered the question but that's excellent. Yeah, I, I try not to micromanage her. You know, it's actually something I learned from Stuart Gordon. You know, like a lot of times you work for these directors as a composer and they're just like, they just say a bunch of dumb shit or they'll be like, I don't know, could you make it more brown? Or, you know, they, they make these arbitrary changes to things to feel like they're putting their stamp on it. And it's, uh, it, it, most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference one way or another. It's just, you know, when you're not a musician, you're, you're handing over a like, a big part of your, the creative sort of shape of your film to somebody else. And so, you know, I think people try to like impose, you know, just to feel like they're controlling part of this process. They, they give you a bunch of notes that don't always make sense or, you know, and a lot of times actually make it worse. And so one of the things I learned from Stuart Gordon was like, for him, it was either, it was just right or wrong, you know? And like, for example, when I did this episode of Masters of Horror for him, um, you know, uh, he was actually shooting another film in Canada. And so I would send him the music and he would just be like, oh yeah, that's great. Oh yeah, that's great. And then, uh, but, uh, or, or he'd be like, no, no, this is all wrong. Like there was this scene where Edgar Allan Poe is all aggravated and he's like running out of his apartment and runs down into the basement where he's uh, buried his dead wife. And uh, uh I had written this like really aggressive kind of almost sort of neo-baroque kind of uh, string music that I thought was really cool because he was he's all agitated. And Stuart was like, no, 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 it needs to be like Darth Vader just, and so I just 
made it all like slow and low strings. And it was just a completely different vibe and it was cool. Uh, but it was for, so for him, it was basically, it was just right or wrong. You know, it wasn't like, none of, it didn't like, ah, at this one, can you just give it a little tinkle to, you know, and it's stuff that's going to disappear under sound design and stuff later anyway. So I tried to kind of take that approach with this, where there were two or three cues that were sort of maybe problem moments where we went back and forth a lot, but you know, it was either right or wrong, you know, and, and uh, we had a lot of discussions up front about the approach and you know, I had to kind of sublimate that kind of composer thing where it's like you want to get in there and just micromanage stuff. And because, I mean, she's incredibly talented. And so it's like, you know, she did a great job and it just wasn't, it, it wasn't helpful for me to go in there and be like, uh, you know, like, let's modulate a half step here or something. You know, it's just, it was, it was not. I, I mean, I just love to hear that. And I love that message that, you know, when you collaborate with people and, and you know, maybe it speaks to your, directorial experience and your music experience that you have and the story you just told you know it's right or it's wrong to let that happen but i can imagine that it's very tough when you have a skill set that you're working with someone that has a skill set where notes and thoughts and stuff changes but you have to trust the process and it's a fascinating fascinating side of the business if you ask me yeah well it's like i mean i i've, I've edited a lot of stuff in my life but uh in my career but you know I like I work with an editor on my features uh, the same editor has done my last two movies and it's because he'll he'll basically tell me I'm you know he'll, he'll call me on my shit and stuff and just be like you know you're fucking stupid <laughs> you know it's like do it this you know and, and we hate heads, but you know it, it it makes for a better movie you know I think yeah that's uh, Jay Gartland is the uh Jay Gartland yeah is it's the, a good takeaway it's right or it's wrong yeah, it's really that's a great takeaway from this. I love that. Yeah. One last thing before we start to close out here, Rich, we're getting down to the end. One thing we didn't really discuss, you know, over the last year and a half, you've been really uh, just piling on a lot of these uh, comic book covers. Yeah. You're creating this artwork and it's highly politicized uh, a lot of it. And I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration to, I know you've always been, like you even said, everybody thought that you were going to do as you were a kid. So I, I've known you've always been an, illustra an illustrator, an artist, you know, working various, you know, pencil, ink, whatever. You, you, mm -hmm. you put something in your hand, you're drawing. It's yeah. just no matter what it's, it, way it goes. Um, but why specifically have you, I know why your love of EC Comics, and, and you could talk a little bit about that, but what inspired you to adapt EC Comics to the modern era? What what was? I mean, well, I mean, you know, like, look, I mean, I, you know, the thing is, like, nerd culture is very ascendant right now, and and so it's like I was doing these, you know, during the Trump era, it, you know, it was very frustrating because a lot of people, even that I'm related to and stuff, they they seem to be kind of they've kind of, you know, fallen into this cult and and. So I, I started doing these cartoons and just posting them online because I thought maybe I could reach them a little bit, you know, and uh, and but I I I I, uh, I use the kind of old timey comic book cover thing because uh, I thought it was just a funny way to kind of get the message out, you know, and it, it's very grabby I think right now, like and so you know like I did this one where it was the Incredible Sulk and it was like 
Trump like tweeting and you know and then it went kind of viral like Bette Midler fucking tweeted it you know it was kind of was it was pretty cool uh but and it was all around a lot of it was around the election or leading up to the election it was just kind of I don't know trying to do my part I guess you know and somebody noticed I mean obviously and have is there a place where we could see all of these yeah. yeah, I mean, if you go to my Instagram, I post a lot of the stuff on my Instagram. And actually, I just published a couple of cartoons in a in a, a zine with a bunch of other cartoonists that I really like, uh, guys like Dexter Cockburn and and uh, Glenn Head and stuff are in this. It's called Spread Love Zine or Comics, Spread Love Comics. And uh, so, uh, as a matter of fact, the most the, the newest issue that's going to come out, I did the cover for. So it'll be pretty. Really? Yeah, yeah. And when's that drop? Well, well, there's two. There, like, I have comics in episode, in issue episode, issue two and uh, three, and then uh, if all goes according to plan, ep, uh, issue four should have my cover. And then I, I, he actually has been talking to me about maybe doing a whole like thing that's my own, but I don't know. It's just a lot of time, you know. So you had a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, well, I mean, I have a backlog of drawings. If he just wants to put those out, but. <laughs> all right well rich we'll put up some of your drawings on our you know when we when we push this thing out as well as where to find some of the films and look forward to seeing i've already seen the movie uh uh i don't i think i saw it was that the final final mix no it was was not the final mix actually and like you gave us some notes even picture notes that we kind of we took a few things that were it was very helpful so i appreciate you coming out and watching it excellent my friend so look forward to seeing that again in February. Let's go around the horn. George, any last thoughts? Yeah, Rich, I appreciate your time. And I was looking at some of your artwork and uh, the one that I really got a kick out of was the uh, Giuliani one. And uh, it, it, I can't, uh, if you follow what that guy's up to, like the last couple of months, I mean, it's got to be the most bizarre behavior I can remember. I saw something where he might've been they thought he was living in like LaGuardia airport. He was like at a restaurant shaving. I mean, have you, have you followed any of his, uh, what he's up to? I think he gave a speech on nine 11 and the guy was loaded. He was like near blacked out and it's so fucking bizarre. I never liked Giuliani, like forget about his association with Donald Trump, uh, being a New Yorker. And wow. He, he must've inspired you, uh, for a lot of that type of artwork. I mean, it, it is to me. I mean, the thing is that, like, with all the Trump stuff, you know, I mean, it's it's almost so kind of cartoonish and, and clownish that it's it's almost hard to lampoon because it's so strange. <laughs> it writes itself, yeah. It's just, yeah, it almost writes itself, but it, you know, it's very easy. I mean, it's sometimes you feel a little bit like you know when you're doing these cartoons, like you're kind of punching down, but you know, whatever. You know, I don't mind. I'll punch. Yeah. Down. No, it was good stuff, and I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, it was really uh, interesting uh, stuff. And look forward to uh, your work that's coming coming out in the future. Yeah. And yeah, Peter Liska, do you want to uh, do you want to uh, yeah words and take us out? Rich, all I'll say is, man, is um, you know, uh, your cartoons offered a a great reprieve from a hectic time in everyone's life, and uh, I followed it throughout. Roger tipped me to it. And I always, it always just kind of, you know, reset you and like put a little perspective. And uh, I appreciate you for that. If anybody's uh, watch or listening, please, it is, it is a must follow uh, on Instagram for sure. 
And thanks for your time, man. It's great to get to know you and great to hear, your, hear a little bit of your story. We really appreciate it. We really do. No, it's thanks. been fun, guys. Thank you so much. Roger takes us out always. He asked me to, but I'm going to just toss oh, it right back to him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for watching or listening another episode of $5 Buzz. You've got any comments or questions? You got any concerns or anybody you want us to book or any ideas of what we could talk about? Please email us at $5 Buzz, and that's F I V E D O L L A R B U Z Z at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can or as soon as we're done scaring the crap out of ourselves, I guess. <laughs> All right. Happy Halloween, motherfuckers. Happy Halloween, guys. Yeah.